0: Welcome to episode 7 of English for Life in the UK. This podcast is for intermediate level learners of English who want to improve their English and at the same time learn more about life in the United Kingdom. It is produced by a group of volunteers from the St Augustine Centre in Halifax, Yorkshire. Today's episode is a short one on the subject of sport in the UK. It is presented by Christine and John.
1: Okay, John, last week on the 16th of January, I know you covered sport, With the class, but I wasn't there, and nor was Mark. So, can you tell us a bit about what you covered?
2: Yeah, I covered well. We first off, we had um, a picture matching exercise um, with short pieces of text, uh, and we covered eleven sports that were invented, well, invented or codified in the UK. So, the sports we looked at were football, rugby union. Rugby League, Rowing, Darts, Tennis, Squash, Badminton, Table Tennis, Golf and Cricket.
1: Wow, wow. <laughs> and you said you said they were invented or codified. Could you explain what you mean yeah, by that? We,
2: um, we looked at the sports that, you know, games with people kicking a ball or throwing a ball obviously have been played all over the world for hundreds or, or thousands of years and, and rowing for example obviously you know that's something that's been going on for thousands of years all over the world but we looked at the idea of codifying a sport that's where you take a spotlight we explain that football would have played been played a lot to a similar game but with very different rules in different parts of england and scotland different parts of the world and what happened towards the end of the 19th century Uh, From the mid-19th century onwards, (coughs) sports would be given specific sets of rules and they would set up organisations to enforce these rules and oversee competition between different teams, for example. Um, So, famously, the Football Association emerged, the Rugby Football Union uh, and similar bodies that uh, oversaw uh, the rules and competition in tennis, rowing, cricket, etc. And did you discuss football? We did the. Um, we looked at various, as I said, sort of eleven sports. Um, far and away, the most popular sport in the UK and, and internationally is is association football, of course, or soccer, as the Americans call it. Um, we have in our class people from Senegal, from Iran, from many parts of the world that are uh, that are just as fanatical about football as, as we are in in the UK. So there are there are a lot of interest in that. Um, so back to the sort of Victorian era, we looked at the setting up of the Football League in 1888 uh, and there were some quite surprising things in that for some of the students because we, one of the reading exercises included the 12 founder members of the Football League which was founded in, in mm. the north of England in 1888 and they are, as you'll probably know Christine, Accrington, Aston Villa, <laughs> Blackburn Bolton Wanderers, Burnley, Derby County, Everton, Notts County, who are the oldest team in the world, still playing, Preston North End, Stoke, West Brom and Wolverhampton Wanderers. Um, well I certainly didn't know that but how I, are are I have heard <laughs> of them all, I have heard of well, them this all. Well it's very interesting. interesting, obviously all uh, still playing in one form or another in various divisions but what the students... We uh, were very quick to realise um, well, there were no London clubs, there were no Chelsea, Tottenham, Arsenal, mm. there were none of the Manchester United's or Liverpool's, um, so we went on to explain that you know the, the founder clubs and the, and the the real big clubs at the beginning of the game were focused very much in the West Midlands and the North West, Lancashire, uh, and this was due to the large industries, there were thousands and thousands of people who wanted to watch football uh, and the clubs grew out of uh, out of the the northern powerhouse as it was at the time. So I think I found found mm. that quite interesting. Yeah,
1: very interesting. And you mentioned something at the beginning about you mentioned rugby union and rugby
2: league. Yeah, now, well,
1: John, could you explain to me what most, the
2: difference is? Well, I, I didn't know. I whether think the, I know in the, Well, in the pictures, we had a, we had a picture of some rugby union players. So we had the All Blacks, I think, playing against South Africa. Uh, and the Rugby League picture was illustrated by a game between Leeds and Huddersfield, two local Rugby League teams. Um, so most of the students did actually get that. I think it was probably the fame of the All Blacks, perhaps, than uh-huh. uh, the jerseys that, that they managed to spot that one. But obviously most of them were unsure about the exact differences. So <clears throat> obviously Rugby League, big thing in Halifax. I went on to explain the historic differences in the two codes and how they diverged. Um, back to 1895 the, the northern rugby league teams as they are now broke away from the then rugby union over the issue of what they called broken time hmm. which basically meant that when their players were training and playing they wanted to be able to remunerate them they wanted to be able to pay them Right. Uh, and at the time and for many years after the rugby union were staunchly amateur Whereas Rugby League became professional. So, real language point there, we discussed the difference between amateur and professional. So if you're playing football on a Sunday afternoon in Halifax for the local team, you'd be an amateur player. If you're playing for Liverpool or Manchester City and getting a wage, you'd be a professional player. So that's what the... So I, the main I s- difference was.
1: I suppose if there's no wages for rugby union, that meant it was they were wealthier people. They, did tend, they did tend
2: to be, yes. Yeah. So we did go on to examine that you know this f- historically has been something of a, a regional and a class difference. Um, rugby union often paid their players in other ways. This was always quite controversial that they'd often ah. be given jobs or there'd be some ah. form of remuneration, but um, quite often under the table, so to speak. Whereas rugby league, uh, it was played at an amateur level, obviously, uh, locally, but at the at the top club level, it's been a professional game for since eighteen ninety five. So they found that I think they found that quite interesting. We looked at some of the local rugby league teams: Keithley, Halifax, Bradford, Leeds. Uh, so that's something that I've got some experience of living in West Yorkshire. Very good, yeah.
1: and so you in your discussion of sport, how did you get on talking about how did you link into other
2: sessions we link back to some of those other sessions because um, when we did look at rugby I mean obviously football is completely international isn't it it's across Asia South America everywhere in the world plays football Um, but when we looked at rugby union rugby league and cricket um, we examined some of the teams that play that that compete in those world cups that compete internationally uh, and they were all very quick to spot that these teams are all from the British Commonwealth or the former uh-huh. British Empire. So the great cricket teams from Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, uh, and also, obviously also it's played across Australia, New Zealand, South Africa. Very much the same with rugby. You know, the only teams that really compete, apart from a few exceptions, they do tend to be Australia, South Africa, yeah. etc. So these were these were sports that, um, that spread from the UK to the Empire and, and later the Commonwealth
1: well that sounds very interesting
2: yeah um. it was yeah Um we as I say we've been through all those various sports um, and we looked at um, well we we discussed the idea of, of secret history which is something that uh, the historians a uh, phrase that historians use for for histories that aren't as well known, for example, oh, yeah. that haven't been covered perhaps by you know by so standard history. What's some of the secret history well, of sport? Well, then? we we looked at um, a, a lady called Lily Parr and the famous teams that she competed in. Uh, she was uh, a fantastic football player in the nineteen well, the, just after the First World War and into the nineteen twenties, uh, and it's a little known. A uh, little-known history, obviously people know all about the history of the great football teams and Scotland and England, and they know all about the great cricket players. Um, but w- we examined uh, women's football. Obviously, it's, uh, women's football is thriving at the moment. They're doing very mm-hmm. well on the international stage, and women's club teams are uh, getting great support. Um, but we looked at women's football in the story of the, the World War One ladies' teams, um, so again, we looked back to things that we'd already covered. World War One. We'd looked at uh, munitions factories. We'd looked about women coming into work and the effect that that had on the democratic system, whereby women were able to push for the the, the vote after the war. But what's a, a little known history is that when pretty much all the men, the uh, healthy men, were away fighting in the trenches and wherever, the women basically set up, They would set up their own football teams and they competed in place of the men's football teams uh and they had a full football league huge attendances we discussed one match um pre- preston north end had a very famous ladies team um, they had a fixture at goodison which is the home of everton uh with 53,000 people My in attendance goodness. and 12,000 people locked down who, wow. couldn't, who couldn't get through the turnstiles so the, the the ladies, I think, were quite impressed with that as well. They found that very interesting, um, and we just, you know, we just looked at what a huge um, sporting spectacle that had been and how successful it had all been. Uh, and then, unfortunately, in nineteen twenty one, the the FA, um, the Football Association, deemed that it was uh, a game unsuitable for ladies. So they actually banned women's football, and the women were actually banned from uh, playing competitive football on. Uh, at any grounds that were uh, that were members of the the FA, so all found that very interesting. Um, and we, so that was something that we examined towards the end of the lesson, uh, and the reading that we took home on that.
1: Yeah. Very very interesting.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I'm sad I missed
2: it. Oh, well, <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm glad we could do the podcast Yes. So thank you.
0: Language support. This is the part of the podcast where I pick out one or two language-specific points from the episode. Today I want to focus a bit on regional variations in language. We have already highlighted in the past that with John coming from Yorkshire, Christine from Scotland and myself from London and the South, we have different accents. You will also find that in different regions there are different styles and forms of the language. Sometimes we say different dialects. In this episode, John uses a couple of expressions that are very much Yorkshire dialect. For example, he talked of some of us other sessions. In standard English we would say some of our other sessions. But some people, using Yorkshire dialect, would say us instead of our. Later he referred to that were something we examined in a previous session. Here he is using were, whereas standard English would be was. Another example of Yorkshire dialect that would be used by some people in this region. You may have noticed in the past phrases that Christine has used. I noticed, for example, that when she pauses, whereas I might say, well, er... Uh, she says, Och, that would be spelled O-C-H and is very classically Scottish as an expression. She also told me that she will say, "ampti" instead of, are Again, an example of Scottish dialect. And of course, because I come from the south of England, I pronounce some words differently than people in Yorkshire and the North. The classic is, I would say, I'm taking a bath. Whereas in Yorkshire and other parts of the North, they would they'd talk about taking a bath. I'm sure you will have come across other examples of regional accents and dialects. We will probably cover more of these in future episodes. That's it for today. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. So we're doing the economy this week um, and uh, we're going to look at the public sector and the private sector parts of the economy. So the public sector. Um, Christine, what 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 do we mean by the public sector, first of all? Well, the, the public sector means all
1: the aspects of the economy that are funded by the government. So the government, of course, gets revenue, income from taxes... Um, from income tax national insurance value added tax and lots of different you know lots of different areas and then they spend that money um, and they spend it on very on different sectors Um,
0: interestingly because I think we asked our students didn't we to sort of what did they think What the biggest spending areas were, and uh, it was interesting, wasn't it?
1: It was interesting, because by far and away the biggest one, they thought, was defence. Whereas actually, defence is uh, only about 6%
0: of our spending. So this week we're doing about the economy, um, and we're going to look at the public sector and the private sector parts of the economy. So, uh, Christine, what, what do we mean by the public sector?
1: Well, that's the part of the economy that's paid for by the government, by central government or by local government. Uh, they collect taxes in lots of different ways, but they collect money in and then they spend it on the good of society. Uh, for example, healthcare education
0: defense okay and when we were talking with our students we asked them what do they think would be the highest areas of spending but on the public sector by the government and that was interesting wasn't it it was very interesting because they all thought that the highest
1: the biggest expense would be defense where actually that's really quite small as a part of spending it's about six percent um, so I asked them why they thought it was defense and they see a strong army they see they see it and that's why they think it um, interestingly when we had the exercise of I, I invited them to say which areas they would like to of spend, which areas of spending they would like to see increased they didn't want defence spending to be increased. They were glad it was only 6% in the
0: main. Yeah, what were, they, what were the areas they came up with that was their preferences? Well, at, let
1: me tell you what the current spending is okay, yeah. uh, at the moment, the current proportion of spending, approximately, and then we can talk about how they would change it. Uh, at the moment, the UK government spends almost 20% uh, of revenue on pensions, um, 18% on health care, 14% on welfare. What, lo- does, what
0: do we mean by welfare? What would that include? It,
1: it, a whole range of things. Care for older people, um, extra support for people who can't work. Mm-hmm. So unemployed people perhaps, some people with disabilities. And also personal and social care for elderly people or other people who can't look after okay. themselves. So that's welfare, yeah. yeah. Uh, education is 11% or has been 11% of the public spending. Defence, 6%. Um, protection, it's called, but that means police, firefighters, prisons. Mm-hmm. 4% of the public purse is spent on that. Transport, likewise, 4%. Um, and then, of course, the 6%, similar to the amount spent on defence, is spent on servicing the national debt. It's paid on interest.
0: So that's the money that the government has borrowed, because that's the other way it gets money in, as well as taxes. It borrows money. It does. And that's the interest that the government has to pay on that money it's borrowed. It does. Mm and w- we chose to uh,
1: consider the economy today because of course yesterday was the budget uh, that's the day when the Chancellor um, reveals plans for spending for the year ahead or for years ahead in some case but plans for future spending and so I invited them to imagine that they were Chancellor and asked them to say what, they, what spending they would like to increase
0: to decrease that was interesting wasn't it I remember so I think one of them argued for more money for education yes and her argument was that actually a more educated workforce will actually be more productive and that uh, science the use of science will help to improve things in society so we need scientists so education is important I thought that was a good argument
1: I did as well and um, also somebody argued for health care in- in- increased money to health care and essentially the argument is of course without good health one can't do anything else yeah. it's essential yeah. um, I expected them to suggest that they spent less money on pensions 20% seems rather yeah. a lot but no, no nobody argued for that
0: Christine and I were pleased with that because <laughs> we're <laughs> pensioners. We are
1: pensioners. <laughs> we, were, we
0: were delighted to hear that. We were happy, laughing about happy that. Happy for the money to be spent on us. But, so that mm-hmm. was good, yes.
1: But also, that, that then, nobody wanted to increase defence spending. Yeah. yeah. But we looked also at what the Chancellor um, himself came up with. And it was interesting that in this budget, this year, he there's been a large... Uh, very substantial increase in public spending. Um, and I, I'm talking about this without having all the facts in front of me, so forgive it. For, I mean, I won't go into detail, but the, he is planning on a big increase in education spending, a big increase in health spending. In fact, he said that, um, of course, because of the coronavirus uh, emergency at the moment, that. Nas- that spending for the National Health Service um, can be whatever is required that's my well mm. delightful son there and his boyfriend he hijacked my iPad oh it is still working
0: I'll edit it later So yes so um extra spending on health because of the coronavirus what else did the chancellor do yesterday
1: uh, well he's um he's promised a lot of uh, a big investment into the regions as well i know that west yorkshire this region is going to get several billion pounds um to spend locally on improved transport and like Manchester, in future they will have their own mayor
0: yeah. and become a separate region. I think we'll talk about that in the next session when we talk about local government, mm. um, so we can give some more information about that there.
1: Yeah, good idea. The w- there was also increased spending on transport,
0: on rail and on roads. Mm-hmm. Um, now you said it was. You said unusually. Why did you say unusually? There was a big increase in public spending.
1: Well, I think, John, I think you explained that um, very, very well, about the traditional spending patterns of the Conservative and the Labour governments.
2: Yeah, which, uh, broadly speaking, we explained that traditionally the Labour Party would be more, um, more inclined to spend more money on public services, so more money yeah. on education, health, social care... Whereas the Conservatives, broadly speaking, would um, not spend quite as much on public services mm. uh, and would push for lower taxes for people and mm. lower taxes on corporations. they see that as a, a better way to grow the economy. Mm. Yeah.
1: So it was very surprising this uh, yesterday when the Chancellor um, put forward such a, a massive increase in public spending.
2: I, I think some of it has been on the cards, so to speak, for a while because Uh, the current government have been in power for 10 years and the austerity programme has seen quite a large drop in public spending so I think they realise perhaps people have had enough of that and they're trying to rebalance things a little bit
0: So then we went on to look at the private sector John you looked different aspects of the private sector tell yes, us a bit about
2: that we, we explained that broadly the economy is split into public and private sectors um, so in terms of Christine examined the public sector spending in the budget and government and local government spending so I went on then to look at the private sector um, so extraction of raw materials coal mining um, the oil industry and um, things like that and well basically we broke it down into three sectors in the private sector so the primary sector so we looked at um, farming, oil extraction, coal extraction in the UK um, and explained how they'd historically been important factors in the UK economy. Um, We went on to look at the secondary sector or the manufacturing sector Um, so we looked at things like construction, automotive plants, factories, finished goods, um, the textile industry uh, and then the tertiary sector or what is commonly known as the service sector which is increasingly important in the UK economy. So we looked at things like tourism, uh, retail, restaurants uh, and the big one that we examined was the financial sector. What would the financial sector include? So, well, we explained that it's quite often referred to as the city, so in terms of the city of London, um, and high street banking, the banks that we use for our money, um, industrial banking um, and the insurance sector, things like that. Um, so we explained what a big part of the UK economy that is um, and how it links us with economies across the world. So, in fact, those three sectors have... Uh, changed significantly over time, haven't they? Yeah, we, we looked at it, we looked at the modern contemporary economy and some of the most important things, and, and the things that people, as they come to live here, will be finding jobs in and that they will be finding employment in. Uh, but we looked at it from a historical perspective that, um, if you like, uh, uh, a primitive economy would be very heavily um, invested in the primary sector. So most people would work in farming, agriculture... fishing, fishing, exactly, Mm. raw material extraction as our economy developed through the industrial revolution um, people were freed up to work in manufacturing Mm. so people moved into mass production of clothing, of machine tools uh, and eventually of Mm. transportation, automotive, things like that Uh, and when we kind of explained that that section of the economy reached its sort of apex in the late 19th early 20th century we went on to explain that in the post-war world uh, things like shipbuilding, uh, manufacturing, textiles um, have dropped off considerably uh, and they were very quick to realise you know we went through the iPhones we were using, the clothes we were wearing, they recognised very quickly that these things are now predominantly made in Taiwan, Vietnam, Bangladesh, China uh, and the UK economy has developed into been more reliant on the service sectors, so things as you say, like banking, finance, retail, and tourism. And tourism, and a bit, big well, one, yeah. I was yeah. quite surprised that I think they said it was 10% of the UK economy based mm. around tourism. So that got, I mean, I knew it were a large part of the economy, but I was quite surprised even by that. I think, yeah.
1: yeah,
2: it's because we, we're we here in Halifax, it
1: doesn't really get its full share of tourism. <laughs> well, we, we,
2: we, we look to, as we always try and put a local kind of spin on things explained you know that when we walk into town we walk past lots of empty textile mills don't mm. we? 40-50 um, years ago would have produced all the clothes that we wear and now these buildings and areas have been turned over to perhaps IT offices, advertising offices and we explained about the Peace Hall, or gyms, things gyms, like that, restaurants, safety, yeah. and we, looked, we looked at the Peace Hall, the things that have been done in and around the Peace Hall um, the retail section within the Peace Hall, the cinemas, the attractions that they put on. Mm-hmm. So you can see Halifax of a kind of microcosm of moving away from manufacturing and moving towards being more reliant on the service mm-hmm. service economy.